you have found yourself at episode 39 of the Rockonomics Podcast. I'm your host, Dill, and today we sit down with keyboardist and rhythm guitarist for the band Daughtry, Elvio Fernandez. Elvio is another guest who had a career, in his case in real estate, and found himself with an opportunity to chase his dream and tour, write, and record with Chris Daughtry in 2012. Initially saying no to the offer, he quickly came to his senses with the help of his wife and has since toured the world, made numerous TV appearances, and grown his camp rock star from a summer program that gives kids an unforgettable learning and performance experience to a year-round music academy. I met up with Elvio while he was on tour supporting Daughtry's latest album, Cage to Rattle, and our conversation went a lot like this. guys I went to school with, it was all about Nick Tahoe's Dude. and a garbage plate. Yes, it's the most ridiculous um, meal that you'll ever have, but it's world famous. It's weird. Like Just being on the road, anytime I stand from Rochester, somebody would be like, oh, garbage plate. <laughs> and you know, we take it for granted being there. But Can you describe for our uh, listeners what a garbage plate oh, is? Oh, man. Okay, so you know, it's described as the best food to consume when you've had a few too many drinks. But basically, it's either two cheeseburger patties or two hot dogs you can get macaroni salad fries you can get home fries you can get french fries baked beans if you want and then they just douse it with this like ground beef based hot sauce there's like cinnamon in it and you literally just mix it all up and go to town and I I, we were touring with Three Doors Down a few years ago and uh, they kept hearing about it so I brought Chris and Brad from Three Doors Down and a couple other guys to have a garbage plate and it was like silence at the table that's so funny buried in this thing it's and funny It's funny now that you mentioned I remember the folklore was like I think a lot of bands used to get dragged there but Van Halen at one time I think was, was dragged there I never so. heard that story but I believe it <laughs> that's that's the thing um, the other thing I think Rochester also is a House of Guitars is that yep there's House of Guitars there. yeah that's a historic place and to this day many musicians still get their get stuff from get House of Guitars yeah I used to work there when I was um, in my early 20s, like right after college, and uh, it was great. I mean, I spent every paycheck there. (laughs) He would pay me, and I would just go buy something, go buy gear, recording gear, whatever it was, was, and uh, it's cool. They're great people. uh, They've always had my back, which is amazing. Really supportive. They sponsor my my academy that I do for kids, Rockstar, Mm -hmm. and they're just, they're wonderful for the community. That's great. It's great that, you know, I know uh, it seems like the local store is a dying breed. And, yeah, they got hurt by Guitar of, Center for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and finally, when I think of uh, Rochester, I think of Lou Graham. Is that, is he? He's a good friend. He's oh, he is? Great. Yeah, I just uh, saw him last week. I saw funny. him last week. He's um, incredible. Like, in my opinion, one of the most underrated rock vocalists of all time. Yeah. He was insanely good. Still is. Well, it's funny growing up in our, you know, in Central New York, like like we did. That's it's it's inescapable. But there's, you know, even down where I am in Syracuse, Cortland, you know, he gets heavy airplay, and it's just you yeah. take so much pride in having, you know, one of your own. That's our guy. Make it to, you know, yeah, make it to that level. I mean, growing up in the in the in the local scene, and just you know, he was a legend. It's like Lou Graham's from Rochester. That was our he was our trophy. You yeah, know? and uh, and what a personable, sweet guy. Very supportive. When I got this gig, I mean, he, he was first to congratulate me and, you know, just the wisdom that you get from a guy like that yeah. and the stories is just, you know, it's priceless. How did you first come into contact with Lou? Um, man, a while back, I have to say I was in my maybe mid to late 20s, there was this attorney, or, or not an attorney, there was this manager who was um, trying to get me a record deal overseas and I needed to sign a bunch of paperwork and I didn't have an entertainment lawyer at the time so I reached out to Lou and he called me right back and he's like I'll give you my guy you know if you ever need any advice and we, you know that just kind of started like this this casual friendship right. and then uh, as my career started to progress with Daughtry you know he would message me on, on Facebook and say hey, I'm proud of you you know great job uh, let's do lunch you know just one of those <laughs> things and um, we know a lot of the same people like there's some pretty a famous radio host in town named Brother Weez, who um, he's, he's a radio legend throughout the country. A lot of a lot of guys mentored under him and things like, or you know, studied under him and stuff like that. But 
him and Lou are friends. So we're, we're friends with a lot of the same right. circle, I guess. Sure. So, uh, you know, he's just a really, really supportive guy. You know, he's happy that somebody else is kind of doing it. <laughs> Not at his level. He's a rock star. I'm just a side guy. But, you know, it's, right. it's still cool. Do you know the guys from uh, Gym Class Heroes? Um, I don't know them personally. But uh, I have... I had a track that I wrote that we sent to Travi McCoy's manager and um, they were going to use it and then ended up not using it but that's the closest I've, I've gotten yeah. to them was okay. so I know they're right down the road in yeah, Geneva, Geneva yeah. um, I just had uh, a drummer on the show um, there's another well, local guy that is killing it um, he's Bruno Mars' keyboard player oh really? yeah John, John Fawcett and he actually went to my high school Years after I went there, he's he's a lot younger than I am, but uh, he's doing well. He's uh, the main main keyboardist for Bruno Mars. Oh wow, that's a yeah. big, that's a big game. And we have some writers too from Rochester that uh, are just crushing it. That you know they don't get a lot of the the big press because they're behind the scenes. But right. um, this kid John Ryan uh, wrote a bunch of those One Direction smash hits, and then Teddy Geiger. Mm-hmm. who was a solo artist at one point and now has uh, transitioned into the... Um, well, he's literally transitioned. And he's also transitioned into the um, writing and producing and he has he did most of Sean Mendes' new record. Okay. So he's pulled a that. lot of those songs. He's a, song. he's a Rochester All kid. Rochester kids. He went to McQuaid, I believe, and uh, McQuaid High School. Oh, yeah. And uh, John Ryan, I mean, they moved to L.A. Now. They live in L.A., but their roots are Rochester-based. So it's... You know, we have a Rochester Hall of Fame, Music Hall of Fame there. Steve Gadd is our other big guy. I mean, it's Lou Graham and Steve Gadd are the the, the two rock royalty. That's very cool. And uh, Steve was just inducted into the uh, Rochester Hall of Fame um, about six months ago. My wife and I went to the ceremony. Paul Simon came. Wow. Unannounced. Wow. Um, Tony Levin was inducted. Steve Gadd. uh, Robert Randolph. It was just, you know, Rochester's a pretty good music scene. Pretty... uh, Famous people that have come out of there that, that a lot of people don't even realize. You know, obviously, Chuck May Jones is another one. I didn't know. I didn't know that one. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, well, let's uh, let's dig into a little bit of your uh, your your beginnings. Were you born in? Rochester? I was born in Rochester. Yep, born and uh, pretty much lived there my whole life, other than a few years when we were in Syracuse. And then uh, I believe I read where it was your your grandfather that played guitar, and that's kind of you seeing that and hearing that. Yeah. Of. Yeah. Um, Spark the interest. Yeah, so he, um, I mean, the story of how my family even got to the United States, is, it's the, you know, the, he came home one day, they, they lived in an, on a small island off of uh, the coast of Portugal called Madeira. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same island that Cristiano Ronaldo, the famous soccer player, is from. <laughs> and uh, he just came home one day and said, we can't make a living here. I need to go to the United States to make money. And uh, he was the first to go over, and then my aunts and uncles went, and my mother was the last one. But it was just, you know, the struggle to get over there and all the paperwork and stuff. But I just remember, as a small child, as, as early as I can remember, um, he would play guitar. It was this Portuguese guitar, 12-string guitar you play with your fingers. And my mom would sing, and uh, the music is called Fado, F-A-D-O. And it's like, it's like the equivalent of... Um, the American blues. It's their blues. Okay. A lot of improvisation. It's very uh, minor key bass, sad sounding music, but it's beautiful. It's just gorgeous. And, uh, you know, I, th- those are my earliest, fondest memories uh, of him was listening to him play guitar and listening to my mom sing. And um, then when my grandmother passed away, he's just stopped. he just stopped playing. That was the day he stopped. And, huh. uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was rough, but, uh, He's the reason why I'm a right. musician. That's weird. Sure. He's, he, why do you think he was denying himself, you know? I don't know. Artistic um, expression at that point. Of, you know, it's obviously a I know. major life. We, we, all, we all wondered the same thing. And I just, he was just so shattered by it. And, and he just, I don't know. I, I, I never, I was young when, when she passed yeah. away. So I never really had um, that conversation with him, but. You know, I, I just remember that when she passed, he just he put it down. Right. And I don't know if it was just too emotional for him or whatever. Sure. But he he was the reason why why I pursued music. He always had my back, bought my keyboards. You know, he would always support my 
you know, whether it was recording gear or whatever, he was he had my back. You know. Did you start with uh, piano? piano yes. Yes. Um, I played by ear. Um, I never took any music lessons, and it was just one of those things where. I guess the, the way to describe it is that, you know, some people are born with that gene where they can they can look at you and draw a perfect portrait. Right. I don't have that gene. But if I hear music and if it's, you know, if I if, if it's something that, that I can hear in my head, I usually can figure it out. And uh, and I learned by, I learned playing piano by just listening to, like, old Billy Joel and Elton John records and whatever was on the radio at the time. Which I grew up in the 80s, so it was a lot of the 80s pop scene. A lot of synthesizer. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> I would just sit down and try to figure out what they were doing, and, and that's that's how I learned. And to, to this day, that's how I do it. I just listen and try to figure it out. And, that's crazy. Uh, it's cool. I mean, I wish I, you know, now that uh, I'm older and, and can look back at things, had I had the opportunity to go to a Berkeley or a school like that mm-hmm. to combine what I already know instinctively with theory and and knowing the you know the, the nuts and bolts behind all that stuff, it would have been great. But, right. Does that impede? I know you're a songwriter too. Does uh-huh. that impede with you how you articulate your your vision to other writers or no, musicians? I don't, I don't. I don't think it impedes it. Um, the only time it would, it, I think, it impedes it is if I'm in a situation where, you know, can um, you chart it for me? <laughs> yeah, chart it for me, no. or or you know, like jazz. I didn't grow up listening to jazz. You can't fake jazz. Like jazz is is there's a lot of theory and math behind it and scales and things like that and I think in those situations uh, I'd get eaten up if I had to jump on stage and, and join a jazz band but you know for the stuff that we do for pop music which again that's what I grew up listening to um, I've done it long enough that that it just makes sense to me mm-hmm. and um, you know I, I if I hear melodies in my head then I just play them you know. Uh, Right. If I'm doing some sort of solo or whatever, I just basically am kind of hearing what I want to do inside my head and then my hands just kind of go there. It's hard to describe. Who, who was the musician or band that, I guess you and your music friends at the time, what, what made a big impact on you? You know, I know you mentioned Billy Joel and, you know, in terms of learning, huge. but yeah. was there a, you know, I'm trying to think of if it was the 80s. I mean... Um, Def Leppard? <laughs> no, not so much Def Leppard. I'm trying to think. Well, the first record I bought, uh, the first album I bought when I was a kid was Synchronicity. Oh, great. Right. And I loved that record. I mean, I listened to it. It was a tape, actually, um, over and over again. And then I think after that, it might have been Thriller, um, which was an incredible album, obviously. And then 1984, Van Halen. I loved Van Halen back in the day. <laughs> Just as they're getting the keyboards. Yeah, and then, I mean, some of those keyboard parts are great. Eddie was so talented yeah still is self-taught yeah and I remember when uh, I was in college um, the uh, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album came out and right now the piano song All right. do, 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 do. Yep. I remember I was like I am going to learn that that is cool <laughs> now uh, how long would it take for you to figure something like that out that one that one took a few minutes man it was like a over and over again listening <laughs> I, I at least probably a half hour at least but uh, it's just it's, it's tricky but uh you know, I was determined to learn it. So, but. so funny. So, when did um, when did you get in? When did bands start happening for you? High school? Or no, uh, bands came late for me. Came uh, probably my senior year in college. So it, it's funny because I was a big jock in high school. Um, I played soccer with my main sport. I, to this day, I still play it. I love it. But I also played basketball and baseball in high school, and. Uh, it wasn't really cool to be a musician mm-hmm. in my circle, sure. so I kind of hid it. <laughs> Only my close, close, close friends knew if they came over to the house and saw like my, my keyboard out or guitar right. or something. But I kind of kept that to myself and, and was just you know in that jock sports scene. And then when I got to college, um, I set up a little studio in my. Uh, I lived in the basement of this. It was called the soccer house at the time with a bunch of soccer players. And I set up like a little PA and my keyboard and stuff. And I think that's when I started to be to get more comfortable playing around people and you know it soon turned into this thing where we'd go out to the bars in college and get back at like 2am and everybody would go into into my uh, into my room and we would just it was it was almost like karaoke but I would play and people would sing grab the mic and it was, it was so much fun and, and I think that's where I started to uh, you know see the impact of, of music and, and 
how fun it could be and, and, and kind of like came out of my shell and, and I wasn't so shy you know right. but uh, my first band was probably my senior year in college it was a local Rochester band so I would drive home 45 minutes to go rehearse and play and I was like the youngest in the band by far it was this, we- this guy had called me up it was like a wedding band but they played gigs and I mean every everybody in the band at the time was probably in their 40s and I'm you know, 22 right but one of those things where I didn't appreciate it then, but I look back now and it was, it was great. I mean, we did like, you know, Steely Dan, the Beatles, a lot of Motown stuff, like stuff that is so cool. Yeah. But back then I didn't appreciate it, you know. <laughs> I was like, I want to play Van Halen, I want to play, uh, you know, Nirvana and all this stuff. And um, But those years, you know, cutting my teeth in that band, learning all, you know, I spent a lot of years playing covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look at it two ways. You can you can say, okay, I wasted a lot of time. I should have been writing my own stuff. Maybe I maybe I'd have my own career. Maybe you know, who knows where that could have gone? But everything for a reason, right? You know, and and playing cover bands for so many years taught me to be versatile. Yeah. In a lot of different styles, in a yeah. lot of you know, uh, you start to recognize chord changes. You start to um, you know just anticipate things coming because. You know, there's only there's only 12 notes in music, and only right. a certain amount of combinations work. You know, and all those years of uh, we we did a lot of improvising and winging it. Like we would take requests, like the band would be like, "What do you guys want to hear?" And people would just yell out songs, and I'd be forced to be in a situation where, okay, I've heard this song before, I got to wing it. And I did that so much that it be, I love it. I was gonna say it sounds like a lot of fun once. So much fun! You've seen those guys when you go to like Las Vegas, the dueling pianos where they literally take requests all right, night, yeah, yeah. that's my gig right there. <laughs> if Daughtry ever fires me, that'll be my next gig because I love doing that. Yeah. You know, just making people happy, playing songs they want to hear. And uh, it's just it's just fun. It just brings joy to the room, you know? Yeah. So so when does, um, I have Uncle Plum written down here, that mm-hmm. the band I believe you were in for over 10 years. It, was yes. that your first foray into like, let's try to make something that we can... Absolutely. That was, uh, so I had been overseas for a while. I was in Japan and of all places, Guam, believe it or not. When I told you that the, this guy was trying to get me a record deal overseas, it was all based around the Japanese market. So, um, I'm sorry, but leading up to that, I don't mean to skip no, no, so no, far, it's but it's, like, it's interesting to see, like, how did you get to a point where someone wants to get you a record deal? And so <laughs> that band that I was telling you about when I was the youngest guy in the band, uh, the wedding band slash, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, we were doing a show at a casino, I think, and there was this guy in the audience, this older gentleman, I'll never forget his name, Joseph Orea, and he came up to me after the show, and he was like, it was like so cliche, almost out of a movie, you got something, kid, you know, I think I can make you famous overseas, and at that time, I'm like, cool, you know, young, I have no responsibilities, and I kind of didn't think anything of it, I had a conversation with him, and then uh, a few months later, I get this phone call at my house, and it was him. We didn't have cell phones yet at that point. I'm dating myself, but and uh, he was like, "I got a gig for you. I'm going to fly you out to Guam, and we're putting this show together with a bunch of uh, artists and, and musicians from all over the world." Blah blah blah. And I want you to sing four songs in the show. We'll pay for everything. We'll give you a condo, car. I mean, it was like too good to be true. And I was like, "This can't be real." <laughs> and uh, so I took a leap of faith, and my parents were so frightened. They were like, "What are you doing?" And I went out there, and it was exactly that. They gave me this beautiful condo that overlooked the ocean, a car. And at the time, they paid me, oh, I don't even, I'm trying to think, it was like 1500 bucks a week to sing four songs. And that's, you know, when you're mid-20s, you got no family, no yeah. response. That's good money. Yep. I was just sending money home every week because they paid <laughs> for everything else. So um, we went, I went through that for about eight months. And then that, that gentleman that was my, quote, agent, I guess, or manager, ended up getting colon cancer. And he got really sick, had to go back to the States. So I'm just out there, kind of in limbo. And I was just like, you know, this doesn't feel right anymore. And I flew back home and started Uncle Plum, that band. And that was just a band to, just at, at that time, the, uh, the, the alternative scene, like the um, bands like Food Fighters. And I, I actually shouldn't say alternative. It was kind of post that whole Soundgarden Pearl Jam thing but bands like uh, Matchbox 20 okay. uh, like Ben and Ezra yeah that whole Toad scene and... that yes exactly so that was um, 
that was getting really popular, and there was no bands in town doing that kind of music, and I really liked it. So I put this band together to just kind of, you know, play those covers, and, and I did want to do originals with this band. I, I was at that point in my life, I was like, all right, I need to start writing. We need to, like, make a go of it, you know? And we put that band together, and without much effort, it just, the fan base grew, and it became this thing, and we literally would play for three, four, five hundred people every single show, every week. It was crazy. Lines outside the door. <laughs> and it was also the time where Rage Against the Machine came out, Limp Bizkit at the time, um, all that, like Kid Rock, all that kind of heavy rock rap. rap. Yeah. yeah. And we started doing some of that stuff. Nobody was doing it. <laughs> and it was so much fun. And it just created this crazy buzz. And then we did an original, we did a record, and that that led to where I'm at right now, to be honest with you. Um, so is this a, a record you put out yourself, or did you have an independent label? We put it out ourselves. Um, we had a, a really close friend of mine is a world-renowned guitar player. His name is Greg Howe. Um, he's, he's done, I think, probably 10-plus solo fusion records with like Victor Wooten, Dennis Chambers, like incredible musicians. He was also Justin Timberlake's guitar player when he first went solo. He was also Michael Jackson's guitar player on the History Tour. Like, the guy's incredible. And he had come to one of our shows and introduced himself, and he and I hit it off, and he, ended, he produced the, uh, the Uncle Plum record, which, you know, at the time, it sounded like Matchbox 20, Vertical Horizon, that, that whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know... I listen to it now and I can't it's hard for me to listen to now because it's like ah, if I search it out on Google will it pop I don't even know if it will I don't know because we never we weren't signed or anything we released it ourselves and I mean I have a box from at home I could probably get you on but it, it never uh, it was huge locally mm-hmm. but it you know we did I think one showcase in New York City for a label that we thought we were getting signed right like, oh we love it it's great we're going to hear from us and then you never hear nothing Right. Well, so, I was curious about. I mean, it seems like you know it's a long, a long time to have a band, and like you said, you guys are you know putting five hundred people in seats. There must have been you know you guys must have been trying to angle some way to get a, a yeah. Well, we thought get, we thought we're doing all. The, I mean, this is man. There, you know, social media wasn't really that prevalent back then. MySpace was right. Was yeah, the yeah. thing. After five so, yeah. MySpace. So we just felt like. Let's just keep doing. Obviously, what we're doing is working. Let's just keep doing it, and if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. If somebody will see us, whatever. You know, we're in Rochester, New York. Who really? Who's going to go to Rochester to look for bands? Right. You know, and you know, obviously, if we can go back, we would have done things a little differently. You know, probably book more shows in New York. But we also had families. We were married. You know, um, it didn't make sense for us to get in a van and try to go after it. Right. We all had careers. I was a real estate agent. You know, you had to pay your bills. Right. And we just weren't in a position where we could, you know, make the ultimate sacrifice that bands make to get to that level. So we kind of just, we were making good money playing. I mean, you know, you're playing for four or 500 people every night. Yeah. You can kind of start demanding your price because the bar is making a ton of money. That's what a lot of bands in, in, in local, especially original artists, don't understand. Like, you know, nobody supports original music. You know, nobody will book us. Are you bringing people? They don't care what you're playing. They want you to spend money at the bar so they don't lose money. You know, and that's what, you know, and we were at that point where bars were making a ton of money. I mean, in our, in our prime, man, we were making 2,500, three grand a night. You and know, are you now? How did you handle the finances between the band? Were you guys we split pay, evenly. paying each other? Or were you yeah, no, we split it evenly, but we had expenses. Obviously, we had a, a really good sound man who was also our booking agent. So you know, he got a, he got a nice chunk of the pot. Um, but you know, we would we would play Friday and Saturday night, and each guy would 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 make seven eight hundred bucks for a weekend. Right. I mean, we would we loved it. And it was, that also paid for the recording, I see. Yeah, yeah, paid for the recording and. Uh, it was just a great part-time job to have, you know. And uh, so when we so we, we end up releasing a, a record that Greg Howe produces, and that led to where I'm at now because it all like um, sequence of events just all kind of aligned, and, and here I am. But um, what year was the record released? Good question. Like 2003, maybe. Okay. I think it was like 2003. Are you releasing a CD or are you releasing it was a something on this? Like, oh, we were so thrilled. Digital CD. CD, baby, or whatever. No, it was a CD. And, uh, 
So the record comes out, and there was a, a friend of mine, a local friend, a guitar player named Mark Provenzano. He sent the CD to his buddy in L.A., who uh, Chris Wood, his name was, who was Brian McKnight's engineer. So Chris gets the CD and ends up playing it for Brian. So Brian McKnight hears the Uncle Plum CD and loved it. And he said, I want to meet this kid. And he flew me out to Burbank, California. And I went to his studio. And while I was at the studio waiting for Brian to show up, there was a kid in there in the vocal booth laying down some tracks. Um, his name was Ace Young. So Ace and I became really good friends. Well, Ace, um, he would he would travel to Rochester for a couple weeks at a time. I would produce him. I had a studio in my house at the time in, in the basement. And we would write together and produce. And then Ace one day said, I want to try out for the show, American Idol. It's a brand new show. I was like, dude, what do you got to lose? You know, he had... Brian had been trying to get him a deal for years and it just didn't, you know, nothing was happening and Ace was a really talented kid. And I was like, yeah, dude, what do you got to lose? Do it. So he tries off American Idol, ends up being one of the front runners right out of the gate. Paul Abdul is quoted in People Magazine saying, Ace Young's going to win this thing. <laughs> and Ace and Chris became friends in the show. Were they the same season? Same season. Okay. So Ace and Chris became good friends and so Ace would talk to Chris about his buddy in Rochester and me and so Chris knew of me and um, fast forward after they after the show is over, they do that idol tour. Mm-hmm. So I went to like four or five of those concerts just to hang out with Ace, to kind of support my buddy. And while doing that, I met all those guys. I met Chris. I met Elliot Yamin, Catherine McPhee, uh, Kelly Pickler, like all all the people on the show. We all kind of you know became acquaintances. You know, I guess we could say friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chris ends up killing it that first Daughtry record just it was like the fastest selling rock album of all time and I would text him congrats bro you know good for you this and that you know just kind of like every every few months just kind of touch base not thinking anything right. you know whatever come of it but and then uh, Ace and I and a friend of mine from Rochester Greg this guy Greg Wiktorski really talented musician producer we wrote this song and we were like man this sounds like a Daughtry song and I was like I gotta send it to him so we sent it to Chris, and at that time, Daughtry had just finished Leave This Town, the second album, and the timing just wasn't right, because they had just released an album right. or so. But I think it kind of planted a bug in Chris's ear that we were doing some cool stuff out of, out of Rochester. And then um, I ended up asking, I'm trying to think how this happened, but it, basically I ended up asking Chris, I was like, hey, do you have any anything that you're working on that you like that, you know you haven't finished or maybe you're kind of like stuck on or whatever that we can work on together he's like you know what as a matter of fact I do so he sent me this song idea called Crazy and it was just a chorus basically a chorus idea Mm -hmm. and so kind of went back and forth and then I wrote a bridge to it recorded it sent it back to him and he was like dude I love this and that song ended up making the third Daughtry album album called Break the Spell Mm mm-hmm uh, Crazy ended up making the album, and um, that really started a good working relationship with Chris and I. And then uh, was that your first? That was my first songwriting. That was my first. I mean, I mean first like yeah. uh, produced piece. Yep. I guess that was my first major label uh, placement for a song, and I was over the moon. It was I was thrilled. I mean, if it if it all ended there, I would have been eternally grateful. <laughs> and you know, I mean, not many people get a chance to write a song that gets on a major album. You sure. Know? Now, did you have to have any representation at that time, just even to get yeah. that far? Uh, well, not to get that far. Well, once or, or once it started. Yeah, going once once they said the the song made the record, then I had to fill out paperwork, I had to get a lawyer, all that stuff, and and it was cool because uh, you know you that was back when people were still buying CDs. So I think I mean I have probably my most prized possession. I have a gold record at home on the wall from that from that song with my name on it, and that, I would I mean. <laughs> I would have never ever thought I'd have a gold record, you know. Now that obviously the uh, the landscape has changed in music, so you know, not many people are buying CDs. It's yeah. all digital downloads and streams. But that started uh, so that started the working relationship with he and I. And uh, I was a real estate agent during the day to you know provide for my wife and two kids and mortgage and all that stuff. And I was showing a house to a young couple. I'll never forget. It was a crappy house too in the city. And 
my phone was sitting on the countertop and I was talking to this couple and, and it rang and it said Chris Daughtry and they flipped out they're like no way you gotta answer that and I was like alright hold on so I pick up the phone and Chris was like hey I'm, I'm getting ready to go out on tour to support this album Break the Spell and I'm looking to add you know a utility guy basically somebody to play keys guitar sing all the background vocals are you interested and I was like man as much as I would love to I can't you know, I have a life here. I have a career in real estate. I have a band. I mean, I was doing a lot of like solo gigs as well as the band gigs. And I got a wife and kids. I can't go on the road. So I, you know, appreciate it. But so came home that night and we're having dinner. And my wife was like, how's your day? And I was like, it was interesting. I go, guess who called me? She's like, who? I said, Chris Daughtry. She's like, no way. What did he want? And I told her and she said, well, what did you say? And I said, I said, no. How am I going to do that? We have... I have a family here you know I have a job and my wife said listen to me I know who I married you've spent hours in that basement you've spent hours in these you know shithole clubs playing you know till 2 in the morning and sacrificing you're 38 years old you may never get this call again you need to call him back and you need to do this we have family here you know I'll figure it out and you know, once I had her, but I even get emotional talking about it because she she's the rock star of my family, not yeah. me. She holds it together, and once I had her blessing, um, I went and, and auditioned. I guess they they kind of wanted to see what I what I could do, and and I went to North Carolina, Greensboro. And is that where they were like starting the tour? Like why? that's where the tour rehearsals were. Okay, and uh, that's right. He's from that area yeah he's from Greensboro and uh, you know I did my homework I learned every single harmony on every song every record I mean I just I wanted to make sure I could show value added right away you know because to be honest with you we joke about it now but nobody in the band wanted me there except Chris and he wasn't even sure like well why is that why do you say that I think think it was one of those things where they didn't they didn't feel like they needed it you know I mean here's another guy coming into the family um, who knows what the thoughts are? I mean, it could have been, you know, is he gonna, is he gonna, you know, infringe on my money? Is he gonna, you know, who knows? You know what I mean? Like we're all, this is a living for us. So, yeah. and uh, that first rehearsal was awkward. You know, I was set up way in the back, you know, next to the drummer, behind lights, and uh, it was, you know, it was it was go time. And and Chris showed up to rehearsal, and he's like, "What do you want to start with?" And I was like, "You tell me. Let's do it." And uh, he called out, "It's not over," which coincidentally has one of the highest most difficult harmony parts in that chorus <laughs> and I was like holy shit here we go this is this is it boy when we get to that chorus if you don't hit it <laughs> and we got to the chorus and, and I just remember nailing it feeling so good about it and I think he stopped the band and he was like he was like stop stop and I was like oh god what did I do and he looked at the guys in the band and he, was, he said something like I dare you to tell me that didn't sound good or something <laughs> almost like to kind of I told you guys you know and from that point on, I kind of, you know, felt that, that they were, were accepting of, of what I was going to bring to the table. And, you know, is that band mostly intact? What are we talking yeah. about today? Uh, the drummer uh, is different now, but the rest of the band okay. is the same. Yeah. But, uh, and now they've become my family. I mean, this year, we released a new record in July. We've been on tour since March. I've spent much more time with them than my own family. Right. Which is tough, but... Uh, yeah, so that Uncle Plum record <laughs> led me to here. So I'm, you know, I'm grateful for all those things, and everything happens for a reason. So I've had a, a couple opportunities in this show where I, I, I have an artist that is working, mm-hmm. you know, a full time job. What, what was it like, you know, telling your agency that uh, so, you're moving on? So I had just when Chris called me, I had just become partners with two guys at Remax. We formed our own like business within Remax. A lot of agents do that. And they knew that I was a diehard musician. I, I, you know, I was kind of a, at the risk of, I don't want to sound cocky or whatever, but I, can't, I was like a local celebrity because yeah, of yeah. Uncle Plum. Sure. So they knew that that was a big part of my life. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so when they found out that, that that call came, I had a meeting with them and I was conflicted. I was like, I don't know what to do. And they said, look, we'll give you six months. Go try it for six months. And then you got to make a decision because okay. we obviously can't continue, right. which was really cool of them because it enabled me to, you know, to, to give it a shot without too much risk. And when I, uh, so I went out, 
with Daughtry for six months. We toured Europe, arenas. I think our, our, we toured with Nickelback, I think was that first tour. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, if this is it after six months, again, I'm cool. I, I played Wembley Arena. I played Olympic Stadium in Munich. I mean, I can't. I'm good. Like, I was so grateful. And I was, I mean, because I, I didn't have a track record, it's not like I was coming from McCartney's camp or some big band. It was just, I was Chris's friend. Right. So the money in the beginning was, was not good. It, you know, it was, it was good for a single guy that doesn't have a family and kids right. and a mortgage and a car and all Were you thing. making less than you would have made? If Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a, it was a slow leak every month. Um, <laughs> but I get it. It's business. You know, they're not, yeah. you're not going to get paid top dollar until you prove yourself. Yeah. And, you know, my wife and I had money saved and, and we kind of both agreed that, um, let me, let me do what I do and, and, and if I prove my worth, maybe the money will come later. Yeah. And uh, so six months came up and I, had, and I, I told Chris, I said, hey, you know, I got to go. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I am grateful. I loved it. But um, unfortunately, it doesn't, it's not working for my family and I, and, and, you know. And the next day, he came to my hotel room and said, you're not going anywhere. And here I am seven years later, a member of the band and grateful and, and you know, playing music with people I care for dearly that are all we're on the same page. We all have families, you mm-hmm. know. It's not like I'm not with uh, some crazy 80s hair metal band like, you know, with, you know, hookers backstage and drugs. It's, right. like, it's not like that. You know, we're a family. Yeah, everybody's cool. We're respectful. And uh, it's the perfect situation for me. So when you made that, so that was, you were telling Chris at the time, obviously the tour had wrapped. Mm-hmm. The tour was wrapping and you, you were saying, I mean, did you specifically say it's, it's not working monetarily at the time? Or just, I think so, yeah. I just said, you know, you know, like I, I, you know, I've got stuff at home. Yeah, I mean, yeah it wasn't one of those things where you're being greedy or anything. You're just yeah, being yeah. real and saying, hey, I've got, unfortunately, you know, I, I was doing well in the real estate business and, you know, my and band was doing well. Sure. And... I was playing a lot of gigs, so you know you, you you build a lifestyle based around you know what's happening currently. Yeah. And unfortunately, I wasn't in a situation where I could I wasn't going to sell my house and disrupt my family just to be a musician. You yeah. know what I mean? So uh, he understood. It was cool, and, um, and, and we ended up working it out. And it was in you know, and then the writing, you know, you start to get residuals and things like that. So that you know, the song that got me the gig basically. Mm-hmm crazy uh, that that album sold seven or eight hundred thousand copies and you know it, it was it was nice to my wife spent that money before I even got home from tour I came home from tour there's a deck on the back of my house with a hot tub and I was like okay I see where that check went <laughs> but you know that's why we do it I, I look at it as we do this if I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice and be away from my wife and kids then man the least I could do is give them a, a, a home that they can, yeah. they can enjoy and, and a deck in a hot tub or whatever <laughs> whatever it is you know whatever right. you know what are we doing it for yeah. Know, just, yeah so so in that first tour you know stateside Europe um, was there any other uh, stuff like TV shows or oh you my know, god were, were you getting all that talk about all yeah, that right yes after? yes so I'll never forget maybe two weeks in um they let us. They, they tell us that we're going to be performing live on American Idol. Our new single at the time was a song called uh, I think Out of My Head, and uh, we're playing it live on Idol. I'm like, oh my god, holy shit! We got TV, like millions of people watch this. So um, we get there, and Chris is like, hey, I'm going to go say hi to Randy. You want to come with me? And I'm like, cool, yeah. So we go backstage. Um, the, Idol has this like back parking lot area with a bunch of like campers. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's like their dressing rooms. Yeah, trailers. Yeah, trailers. So um, we go back, we see Randy, and he's he's Randy. Yo, dog, what's up? Yeah, good to see you, CD. And he introduces me. It's my keyboard player, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, hey, nice to meet you. It was cool. And all of a sudden, Randy goes, hey, let's go say hi to Steven. I'm like, no way. You've got to be kidding me. So he takes us back. We walk into Steven Tyler's trailer. And he comes out, and he is every bit... Stephen Tyler, like <laughs> just is. huge personality, and what a cool, gracious guy. We ended up hanging out in his trailer, listening to the new Aerosmith record for like an hour, <laughs> and he's like, 
at a couple points, he's got his arm around me. He's like, you sing the harmonies, right? Check this harmony out. He's like singing it to me. And I'm just looking at Chris going, is this, are you serious right now? That's insane. It's inc- yeah, it was incredible. That's very cool. So a lot, of, we've had a lot of those moments that, that uh, you know, I have pictures on my iPhone that are just treasures. Like I have a picture with Stevie Wonder. Got to hang out with him for a whole day at a family barbecue of all places. Oh my gosh. So his son-in-law at the time worked with our band as, a, as an MD, Andre Gill, who's an incredible music director. Works with a lot of artists, and uh, so we got invited to a family barbecue, and there was Stevie. You know, so it's just like there's so many of these crazy uh, things that happen in this business that are unexpected that really make you um, you just you know, just grateful. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, anybody who's anybody who's a musician started as a fan. Totally. You know, and it's hard to shed that fandom for for anybody. Really. Yeah. I had this conversation. We played the the Ryman last night in Nashville, and. Um, you know, the, the crowd was filled with a lot of badass musicians and producers. And so we have like a, after the show, there was like a, a in catering, everybody just kind of hung out up there, all the guests and things like that. And I walked in and uh, Kyle Cook, the guitar player from Matchbox 20, and he's played with a bunch of other people as well and great solo artist in his own right. But I remember him mostly from Matchbox 20 because Uncle Plum used to cover that stuff. Right. So here I am, and, and this has happened a few times, where we've had bands open for Daughtry that I used to cover. And it's like so crazy that, you know, yeah. wow, you know? And Emerson Hart was there last night, and he was the lead singer of Tonic. He used yep. to do all those Tonic songs, and all those Matchbox songs. And I was talking to Kyle about it last night. I was like, it's great to meet you, dude. And it's like, you know, it's, it's an honor to, I mean, I used to cover your tunes, and your parts, <laughs> you know what I mean? And here we are as peers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really cool. That's very funny. Yeah. Um, I know recently on your Instagram was Dave Grohl. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that put that on the top of the list. So, Foo Fighters are probably my favorite rock band on the planet. They're just... And, and again, Uncle Plum, I used to sing... I used to do The Pretender, um, All My Life, Times Like These, Learn to Fly, uh, <laughs> Best of You. Like, we used to cover so many other tunes. We love that band. And to get an opportunity, so we had a day off in San Jose, and my ritual on days off, if I'm not golfing, because that's like my, right, that's my addiction, um, is to go on Ticketmaster and see what's going on in this particular city on our day off. So I went on Ticketmaster and it said Foo Fighters, and I'd never seen them. And I sent Chris a text. I go, bro, the Foo Fighters are playing tonight here in San Jose, and he was like, oh my god, we've got to figure this out. So Chris happens to know Dave Grohl. And sends him a text, and next thing you know, we're at the show, and we are in his dressing room an hour before the show, just hanging out and drinking and talking and hearing stories. And when I say gracious and cool, he should be the president of music. Like they should just anoint him. Listen, dude, you just take just take charge of the whole industry, please, because you're cool and you know what you're talking about and you're respected. I mean, he was just the real the coolest host, and that. Before a show, not a lot of bands want to be bothered. Yeah. You know, you kind of get in your zone. He's the opposite. He's like, I want to go on stage in a good mood. So I love to hang out with people. I love to, the camaraderie of it. And we never once felt like we were in, impeding on his you know, quiet right. time or whatever. He was just such a gracious dude. And then they came out and just destroyed the place. Like, you know, from the first note, the, that stadium or the arena was just rocking. <laughs> and it's, it's straight up. American rock and roll. There's yeah. no pretense. There's no, you know, he's up there screaming and destroying his voice and he doesn't care. It's all about the energy. It's not about precision and being perfect. And and you can learn a lot from watching a band like that because we can get in our own heads, like trying yeah. to be perfect on every note and trying to, you know, uh, execute. And It's not, it's just music. And I think a lot of artists lose that they put that wall between them and the audience and they try so hard to be, you know, it, almost they take it too seriously. Right. And I always have this saying and I, I, I mean it, like, we're not curing cancer or curing AIDS. It's just music. We're there to have a good time and to put a smile on those people's faces. And when you're, you know, nitpicking this and that, that's not what it's about. You yeah. know, and I respect musicians that, that are very technical and that want to, you know, be perfect. But, you go and see Dave Grohl and you see the Foo Fighters and you're just like, this is what it's all about. Yeah. There's, a, there's a certain genre of rock and roll where you can't be too precious. No, no. And he's not like that. We were like, 
you know, talking about like in-ear monitors and stuff. He's like, hell no, I can't use those things. I've had the same monitor guy since Nirvana. And he's like, I was like, do you have hearing damage? He goes, hell yeah, I can't barely hear through this ear. Like he, he's just, it's, it's great. Like he embodies all that is rock and roll, yeah. you know? That's great. And it's great that you know, between him and Steven Tyler, it's like, yeah, what you see is what you get. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So that's cool. So um, after, you know, so you wrap up, let's go back to, you know, you're, you're with Daughtry, you do mm-hmm. your first run, your first tour, your first album. What's, you know, and I guess also, you know, you, you've got to go home at some point. Yeah. You go home, you know, be with your family. How does the album process work for the next album? writing and rehearsal yeah there's, there's writing stuff. sessions there's a lot of back and forth um, sending ideas um, I know that when Chris and I write a lot of times I'll send him a, an idea a, a track or or yeah like some sort of music um, if I've got a hook I'll give it to him if I've got an idea and then he's great at, he's a great writer so you know he'll usually on his rig at home just start uh, coming up with ideas and then we just go back and forth and if there's another writer involved like this most recent record, I co-wrote the, the very first uh, track on the record called Just Found Heaven. And uh, we wrote that with Dave Bassett, who is an incredible producer-songwriter. Uh, he wrote X's and O's for L. King and produced that. Fight song, <clears throat> I mean, shot a bunch of shine on stuff. He's an A-list guy. And we just FaceTimed. And three of us wrote the lyrics, and, and I produced the demo, and then... Um, and we went in the studio and we had a, a producer for the whole record and, and for this latest record who is incredible Jakir King his name is and uh, multiple Grammy winner did the produced and mixed the uh, that big Kings of Leon record with Sex on Fire and <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so yeah the process is just you know we'll, we'll, we'll fly out to either Nashville and do some sessions we'll, we'll send stuff back and forth via the internet um, and then when it comes time to make the record, we, we basically flew out to Nashville and um, we did it at Blackbird Studio, which is a famous studio. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And uh, Shakir also has another studio in Franklin, Tennessee that we went to and used a lot. So the process isn't the same every time. It changes. You know, there's no, I, I wouldn't say there's one way that we've done it. Mm-hmm. You know, we've made records a lot of different ways. So. Now, are you, is, how is the band set up? Is, is, is Chris the... Um, sole proprietor and your your you know subcontractors or are, are, are you guys in a band dynamic where there's there's some sort of equity uh, it, it's kind of both I mean I'm not at liberty to really discuss a lot of that stuff but sure. I mean, it's Chris Daughtry yeah. you know, he's the name on the marquee yeah. we get that we are a band but at the end of the day it really is a, it is about what's best for his vision and, and, okay. and, and you know our job is to support him and, and, and you know put him in the best light possible yeah so and we understand that, and that's cool. He's he's very very good about um, keeping us involved, and every guy in, in the band has an equal opportunity to write. And you know, we it's a family, mm-hmm. like it really is. But you know, like I said, it's his. He's the one that's the face of it, and, and it's his name, and it's his vision. And, he's the dad, and we just you know we take his lead and, and trust it. You know, right. and, and he's done a great job so far. So. <laughs> How far out do you guys have plans? How long is this current leg going? Yeah, we're out. We're out all year until the end of December. I'm pretty sure. Um, and then 2019, you. Have... I'm not sure what what's in store for 2019. I would imagine we'll get back in the, into the writing mode, um, but we'll see. Nothing uh, overseas or. Uh, we're going to uh, the UK and South Africa in a couple weeks. Okay, so it's this year. Yeah, okay. yeah, and we did an Asia run earlier in the year, which was amazing. That was incredible. I felt like a beetle. It was weird. <laughs> like, you know, you leave your hotel. We're in Tokyo. You leave your hotel to go. I'm just going to go explore and go get something to eat. And there's fans in the lobby with photos of me that I've never even seen <laughs> calling my name. I'm like, this is weird, you know. But it's it's great. They're so passionate. Yeah, it's so funny. appreciative. It's an incredible culture over there. Like they really know how to treat humans. Yeah, you know? it's it's pretty awesome. Let's get into a little bit of your extracurricular activities. I know sure. a big part of um, what you do on the, I, I guess the off season is the Camp Rockstar. Yeah, um, that's my baby. I've, I, I know a lot about it just by researching you. Can you give us a little top line of what that's all about? Basically, um, when I was in Uncle Plum, uh, we did this 
little festival and there was a lot of families out in the audience, a lot of kids. And um, I had this idea to bring up some kids on stage and just kind of, you know, give them that feeling of what it's like to be up there and feel like a rock star. You know what I mean? And so I brought these kids up and it just sparked this. I saw what it did to these kids. They, I mean, they just lit up and I would tell the audience, I mean, there'd be, some of these festivals, there'd be a couple thousand people out there. <laughs> and I would say to the audience, I was like, your job is to make these kids feel like rock stars. So I would grab like the cutest littlest kid, bring him out front. You know, What's your name, buddy? And you know, Michael or whatever it was. And I was like, all right. So at the time we were doing a Chili Peppers tune, give it away. And I was like, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to hand you the mic. And all you got to do is say, give it away, give it away now. And you can jump around, you can dance, you can do whatever you want. This is your moment. You ready? And the crowd would just cheer. And I would hand the mic to the kid. And it was magic. Like the kid would just like jump up and down, give it away now. You know, the crowd's going nuts. And I was like, whoa, it was like a light went off. I was like, I need to figure out a way to give these kids that feeling. Because it's, it, that can change a kid's life. He'll never forget that. Yeah. So... That night I was laying in bed and I just kind of brainstormed this idea. And it's not like rocket science and, it's in, in, you know, School of Rock exists around the country as mm-hmm. a franchise. But I, I came up with this plan of putting together a music academy. Uh, well, at the time it was just a summer camp. But I was going to do a summer camp um, where the focus was to make kids feel like rock stars and to put together their first show, like their first concert in front of a crowd. So that's what we did. And I devised this... Uh, curriculum basically like the first day first thing we do is we pick them up in a limo or two of us drive them around a little bit so they can feel like you know what they, you know what it feels like and uh, and then they would we call it auditions but nobody gets cut it's mm-hmm. like t-ball everybody participates but each kid would play for us and we would start we would form bands and then each band would have to pick two songs to learn throughout the week with you know individual lessons band rehearsals and then on friday is the show where i would have house of guitars would be a big sponsor they provide all the huge martial amps and drums and everything and you know I'd have a light show I'd have a stylist come in do their makeup and hair and whatever they want and that's their big show and what it does for kids is priceless because these aren't a lot of these kids aren't the cool kids in school on the sports teams they're the quiet artistic kids that literally take guitar lessons go up in their bedrooms by themselves and just play and never get that feeling of what it's like to be in a band and to collaborate with like-minded kids for for an end goal of being able to put on a show, yeah. And you know, I the show every 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 time we do the show on Friday, it's like there's tears, there's just you know parents coming up to me saying, "My kid doesn't even have friends, and now he's on in front of that stage doing a guitar solo in a mohawk." Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? And so that it was a summer camp for nine years, and then I just recently last year turned it into a year-long academy so we have probably about 40 kids we've got six bands we have solo artists that we that we're working with and basically the premise is the same it's join a band learn from pros play live shows and they rehearse once a week kind of like travel sports like they practice once a week for 90 minutes with a pro coach and they work on their set list and then i book 10 to 15 shows a year for these kids clubs we've done festivals and they get an opportunity, and it's usually like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, to get on a stage in front of a couple hundred people and just play. Yeah, that's and awesome. It, it's so much fun. It is so rewarding, and it literally does change your lives because a lot of these bands stay together. Friendships are made. Yeah. Their confidence just goes through the roof. I mean, and that's something you can take with you after music. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, try to grow it, and uh, it's it's been well received and, and it's it's the most important thing I, other than raising other than being a father it's right. the most important thing I do yeah I mean it's it's funny it's uh, I wish they had it when I was, when we were kids yeah that's what we always, I, everybody all my musician friends were like man if we had this when we were kids well, we got a cool facility like I put a 14 by 20 foot stage in this building with a PA lights and they go there and that's their space you know yeah. it's so much fun and that's really cool I mean it, it, when it happens organically it's so such a long road you know yeah. you know like you were saying if you're not the popular kid or like you were saying you were a jock and you not already knew what you were doing there is those it seems like a, a high school dynamic there's you know there's the punk rockers or the you know yeah. the jocks and guys and, and to get it to the cross section to happen to make music sometimes it's, yeah 
you know, it's not the easiest thing to, to do at that age. And, you know, and that, that's the beauty of it because some of our kids, you know, like we could have a drummer that's into, you know, Metallica and metal and his singer could be a girl who's into Demi Lovato and they put that all aside and they work together and they're cool with it. Nobody's complaining, you yeah. know, and once you get a reaction out of the audience, that's the, that's, that's the addiction for them. That rush. And I tell them, you know, we, we guide them. We say, look, you know, make sure you pick songs that, that aren't too obscure because the goal here is you want, you, you want to get a reaction out of the audience. As soon as you hear that opening riff to Sweet Child of Mine, yeah. the crowd's going to go nuts, you know? So it's like you try to guide them into being smart with their song selections and, you know, some of them are starting to write now, which is cool. Um, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that, you know, that's, that's, that's what I want my legacy to be someday. Yeah. Not, I mean, this stuff is cool. Don't get me wrong. And I, and I appreciate the opportunities and being on stage with such a great singer and a great band and traveling the world. But Camp Rockstar is, is that's, that's the impact that, that you want to have, you know? Now, do you see that as something you'd want to franchise much like, you know, do you want to compete with the School of Rock on a... I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I'm so bad at that. I'm not a businessman. You know what I mean? Like I'm the creative guy and, and you know, that, that would be a conversation. I would need help with stuff like that, yeah. but I haven't even thought I'm more concerned about growing it locally. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, if somebody explains to me how to, uh, how to, how to, you know, grow that to a point where it makes sense to do it. Sure. I'm, I'm all ears, you know, but right now it's just, I'm so, I'm so, uh, Dedicated to that local music scene, I feel like we have an opportunity to really change change the landscape of that scene for years to come, and, and we have. You know, a lot of these, a lot of kids that that uh, that have come through my program are now playing out live every week. You know, doing their own gigs, and it's great to see. You know, it's very cool. But yeah, from a business perspective, it, am I am I thinking? Am I short sighted in my thinking? Maybe, but I'm okay with that right yeah. now. Yeah, you know, and it's hard to really run a business when you're on the road all the time. Yeah, and that frustrates me because I know that things could be smoother or I could be growing the, the program quicker if I was there but unfortunately I'm not yeah so yeah, <clears throat> make do but as a as a passion project it's you know it satisfies the soul and times a hundred yeah. it really does very cool yeah well uh, I'll uh, I'll get to the the final five as I call it the same five questions everybody gets to end the show okay uh, question one is uh your house is on fire if your loved ones are safe what do you go back to get that's music related with the most sentimental that value? gold record okay it's funny when you mentioned it earlier I was like I wonder that if that's gold be record <laughs> yeah that's not that's something I never ever in my entire if you would have told me 10 years ago you'd have a gold record on your wall I'd be like I'd laugh at you <laughs> <laughs> it's funny I had a, a Rolling Stone writer I think it was Gavin Edwards on the show he mentioned he was with Kurt Cobain and he took his one of the platinum records down and played it yeah and it was it wasn't even nirvana it was like a classic <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> they just throw any record in there it was spray painted um question two is if i were at liberty to give you a million dollars to donate to one charity which one charity would you give it to i would donate it to camp rockstar it's interesting <laughs> i was thinking about that on the way over i mean it, that's that's a Man, fair question do wonders with that kind of money. What, what would you do with it um, I would I would probably use it to. Um, I mean, it'd be a great way to set up a scholarship fund. Scholarship fund. That's definitely. I actually. I there are a few kids um, that have come through my program that I did um, sponsor and give scholarships to. But I'd like to set something up in a more formal way with you know being able to hit all the inner city schools. I'd, I'd like to. I'd like. I would use that money to figure out a way to let every kid. Who plays music know about our program right you know hit all the schools hit all, especially the inner city school a lot of so many talented kids that just can't you know don't have the means to do it yeah and I, I see what it does for people and, and the importance of of what it does for a kids confidence and, and, and camaraderie and all that stuff and um, I would hire somebody or figure out a way to increase awareness get a bigger facility to accommodate more bands you know mm -hmm. just just grow it so that every kid has a chance to get up on a stage and play in front of people and feel like a rock star because that's really what we're trying to do you know well I'll work harder to try to get <laughs> this to be successful enough to get you that donation oh that'd be amazing <laughs> uh, question three is what would your walk up music be to the pearly gates my walk up music to the pearly gates 
would probably be a recording of my grandfather playing guitar and my mom singing because that's those are my earliest memories and that's you know I, when I'm hiding under the kitchen table at two in the morning while my grandfather hammered is playing guitar and my mom singing and it's and I'm just enthralled like just consumed by it those are my earliest memories and that's when I remember saying this is this is I want to do this right and that's that's how that was the context of it it would be late at night and you'd sneak out oh my god I that's mean, great yeah my grandfather like my grandfather loved to drink and and, they, and when they came over to this country across the street from his house was um, it was called the, the, the Portuguese Club I guess and it was all immigrants from Portugal and it was a bar and he would go there every night and stumble home drunk pick up his guitar and just play and I was supposed to be sleeping and I would hide, come down hide under the table and just listen and just amazed at that sound and, and my mom's voice is beautiful and I just recently was able to for the first time record her in my studio oh cool Very so cool. we never had I mean the recordings that my, that my family had of my, of my parents and my, grand, and my grandfather playing were like you know tape recorder recordings mm-hmm. and my mom was like, I want to make a CD. And I was like, we're doing this. And so she came down to my studio and I, she, she hired these musicians. She goes, they go to, they go to uh, Portugal or Madeira where she's from four months out of the year. And she hired these musicians to record all these backing tracks. She brought those back and then she came into my studio and sang 13 songs. Oh, that's awesome. And that's something I'll have forever. And she, I mean, 74 years old, sounds great. So that'd be my walk up music. That's awesome. It's a treasure. Um, on the flip side of that, what's stuck on repeat in hell? What's stuck on repeat in hell? Oh, man. That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything that I truly hate. Hate? Yeah. It's a tough word. <laughs> um, hey, no one said hate. What yeah, you said I don't hell? No, that's a tough question. Trying to think of what, but I just can't stand. I'm not a huge, um, I'm not a huge metal guy as far as like thrash metal. Mm-hmm. I just, I never got into it. I respect it. It's they're incredible musicians, but you know, I never that whole Anthrax, Pantera, um, that whole scene. I never, it was just never something that I got into. But I, like I said, I do respect it. And I know that. Musicians are incredible, yeah. but I wouldn't say that's on repeat now. That's that's kind of harsh. There's something for everybody. <laughs> well, you know what? So I mean, it, okay, I'll tell you what's on repeat in hell. All those stupid songs that come out, like what the fox says, and and all that crap that makes right. so much money. And here we are, real artists trying to write good songs that you know, and uh, that kind of. Thing. That's a fair. That's a fair answer. No one gets hurt with that. No. I mean, who, who even? Who's the artist behind that? Do you even know? I, dare, I, I, I dare to call it an artist. They're Swedish. I think they. I think they literally went out to write the worst song in the world as a joke, and they became huge. <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Uh, final. Final question is: What's the uh, What's the best concert you've ever witnessed? Ooh, best concert I've ever witnessed. Um, that's a, that's there, there's a few, but. Lady Gaga in Switzerland. We were on tour in Europe and we got an opportunity to see her uh, in Switzerland. It was incredible. We, I, me and our two guitar players, Brian and, and Josh Steely, went to the show and I don't even know if we said two words to each other the whole time because our jaws were just wide open like, oh my God. It was incredible. Just, now, is that, is that a situation where, of course, she's a superstar, but you go in, think, you go in with not really many expectations. And no, we had no idea what to expect. And then you're blown away. First of all, her, <clears throat> how she cares for her fans and, and, and just, um, she's real. Like, you know, she's, she's reading letters on stage from fans and, and these are, you know, I don't know what, she has a nickname for her fans. I'm not sure what it is, but um, just, she really does care and she's so talented and the production was amazing musicianship was great the songs were great it just it was everything aligned you know it was just fantastic um, the, this recent Foo Fighters show was great the very first time I ever saw Billy Joel in concert that changed, that changed my life also I mean I think I was maybe 13 or 14 Rochester Memorial no it was uh, 
Syracuse. It might have been the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. Oh, right. But I just remember it was like I was thrilled, but also almost depressed leaving that concert because it seemed so far-fetched to be able to ever get to that level. Mm-hmm. And it was depressing. But at the same time, like, oh, my God, I want to do that so badly. <laughs> but it didn't seem attainable, so it almost made me depressed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's kind yeah, of a... For sure. Different emotions there, but those those st- stand out as you know. Stevie Wonder, Madison Square Garden was amazing. I mean, there's so many. It's hard for me to really pick one because there's there's so many amazing artists that put on great shows that you know. Each time you say that's the best concert I've ever seen, then you yeah. see another one. And you're like, no wait, that's the best. You well, know? You're, you're not alone. I yeah. get multiple answers. Uh, oh, it's hard. Every guest. Tom Petty. Yes. I saw Tom Petty, and I was over. It was almost overwhelming because every single song was a huge hit. Yeah. And it was like, is this ever? Like, I almost wanted him to play a crappy song because I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> like, stop, please. This is too, it's overload, you know? But, yeah, I, I can't, I can't come up with one. That's good. We got them all. Did we get them? All right. That'll be over. Well, thanks, dude. It was thank, fun, man. Thank I appreciate you. it. I appreciate you guys uh, giving me your time. Pleasure's all ours. All right. Thank you, Elvio Fernandez of the band Daughtry. You can keep up with Elvio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you live in the Rochester area and know a kid who dreams of playing rock and roll, visit CampRockstar.com and get him or her enrolled. That's Camp, R-O-C, no K, star.com. As for our self-serving promotions, if you like the show, please spread the word and get over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and leave us a comment. We'd also love you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. We'll be back next Tuesday with another utility musician who plays keys, samples, acoustic guitar, and percussion for probably the biggest pop rock band at the moment. So big show, so please join us for that. Episode 39 is being put to rest. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.